that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola with my partner in crime, the notorious P.O.B., the Italian American Wikipedia himself, Mr. Patrick O'Boyle, on a beautiful spring day. How is it beautiful? I'm looking out the window and it's cloudy out. It's not beautiful by you? No. Oh, it's gorgeous here. Does that mean Westchester has better weather? I'm enjoying sun. Well, it's, not, Mus- it's not sunny here. No, it's sunny as heck here. Is that reflective of me versus you? That's <laughs> probably true, just our personalities. I'm in the non-sunny place, and you're in the sunny place. I was like, what is he? Like, I'm looking outside. Like, That's beautiful. And by the way, the sun? I don't know if this will show up in the audio. I am uh, outside of my box of boxes for the first time because I have all my stuff moved into my new office, and it's actually killed the sound, all my books in my bookshelf. and So I could actually be out in the air today recording like a human being. Yeah, but I saw I saw your bunker box and i was very impressed <laughs> you're impressed with the construction I, I, I couldn't i don't know how you fit in that thing i know I houdini know. couldn't have made that work it was very uncomfortable very, and, and i and i ended up with like you know my legs asleep most times we recorded and it was rough i did not enjoy that because you're italian american museum for those who have not seen it the reason why john was chained into that box is the fact that he has one of the largest collections of italian american knickknacks and memorabilia you probably have the largest. I probably don't even have to qualify it beyond that. It's got to be up there. I've been digging through boxes like, I mean, every single day and unpacking stuff. And The greatest thing you have is the Royal Family cartoon-esque clock yeah. in brass. You like that, don't you? I just think it's the most, it's just so, I don't know. It's like up there with the Medaglia Doro coffee can that people, I mean, there was two containers, right? There's the Palio we got the yellow container from the 60s and 70s. I got that on my shelf. That's Italian Tupperware. Yeah. Right? Before there was Tupperware, there was a Palio container. Yep. And I'm sure other parts of the country, you had other containers for other brands, but that was the New York, New Jersey brand. And the Medaglia d'Oro coffee cans was yep. another. People put um, metallic stuff in there, nails, change. Or appropriate to our conversation today, they were planters. Many, many houseplants in Medaglia d'Oro uh, pots. Really? I never thought that's a new one. Oh, yeah. I remember that very, very vividly. You know, start your plants inside. As a matter of fact, that's what we're going to talk about today, but that's also what I've been doing this week. And, you know, you were here a couple weeks ago before Easter. I wasn't home, but you saw the, you know, unpacking. It's just boxes after boxes. I saw the baby. You did see the baby. Yeah, yes. you did. God bless the baby. The baby, it's tough to rule who she looks like. I think she's starting to look like Nicole. I do. She's getting I hope she does for her sake. It's not a clear it's not a clear it was a much clearer distinction. I think she leans toward your side now. Did I tell you what she picked up and we don't know how she picked it up? No. She gets mad easily at us, you know, she's a spoiled only child right now. And uh she started doing something that I don't do, Nicole doesn't do, none of our parents do, Alma, our nanny from Italy doesn't do, but my grandmother did very frequently, which is when she gets mad, she takes her hand, sort of palm down to the floor, and puts it to her mouth and bites her fingers. Oh, your father's mother? Yeah, my father's mother, who who passed away, you know, almost 20 years ago. Wow. So I don't know if it's genetic. or We have no idea where she learned it, but that's how she tells us she's mad. She bites her hand like my grandmother did. 
I buy into that 100% because my brother, I've said this many times, my grandmother's brother who died, maybe Anthony saw him three times in his life. Anthony was like 18 months old. But my brother has so many of his tendencies. It's crazy that they pop up. I mean, I pick stuff up. I don't know. I sit in my, I say, just, just there's certain things my brother does and there's no way he would have been able to pick that up. Genetics. So I, yeah, I, th- I do think genetics. I think genetics has a lot to play with personality. Well, speaking of genetics and, and the impact that it may have on us, it's also a topic that uh, brings us together today and one that I know you and I are both interested in and can't wait to bring on our guests. We're going to talk a little bit about the genetics, if you will, the heirlooms of plants, of, of our gardens, of plants and the floral environment and uh, kind of what it means to our heritage and our history. So we've got an amazing guest on here and... Uh, his name is John Forty, and he is a nationally recognized garden historian, ethnobotanist, and heirloom specialist. And uh, he's also part of an initiative that I have been really, really interested in amongst his many, many accolades. I mean, he's got a resume like you can't believe. But something that I've been very interested in for a long time, he was actually part of a, a delegation sent to Italy by Slow Food USA as one of 5,000 regional delegates from over 150 nations for the Terra Madre program, which is the United Nations of Farmers. So something I'm really uh, fascinated by and uh, looking forward to talking about. So, John, welcome to the Italian American Podcast. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, we're happy to have you. This is exciting, and it's a great time. I literally, I was saying to Pat, you know, my office is a mess as I'm unboxing 20 years of boxes that have finally made their way to one place, and somewhere in here... I cannot find, for the life of me, the heirloom seeds that I've been saving forever that I've been dying to plant in my new house. So this has been like a two-day misadventure for me, but uh, I'm new to gardening and home gardening and very happy about this. Don't they all have a limited lifespan, seeds? No. I mean, you might get a little bit less germination over time, but there have been seeds planted back from biblical times, a date palm from a seed over a thousand years old. Um I was part of an archaeological excavation where we found an urn full of magnolia seeds that was 2,000 years old. And it had, when they grew it out, it had one less petal than any magnolia today. So, you know, they can still germinate. But the best thing is you save your seeds every year, like my grandfather and my grandmother did, because then you're saving the one that's the sweetest tomato, the first one to come in, the one that didn't split or was disease resistant. And you kept improving it every year, one after the next, till you had the best tomato for your backyard. And that's something you really can only do with heirloom plants. So I'm glad you've saved some. Now I hope you can find them in time to plant because, boy, <laughs> spring's just arriving fast. I, I'm getting to the kind of cutoff, aren't I? Yeah, so hurry up and find. <laughs> <laughs> when when's the last time you could start germinate like start seedlings? Well, tomatoes, you know, if you were my grandfather, you definitely would have already started by now because there was this point of pride in getting in the first tomatoes of anybody else. And so <laughs> he would start them in the cans like you're talking about and it's funny because all of the pre uh Tupperware plastic and the tin cans Today, we call it sustainability. They just called it using what you've got. And he would use those cans and things, and he would start seedlings every year. He had a cold frame out back. Uh, They had a triple decker in Boston, and he would climb down the third-story trellis that he grew beans on later and plant those things in the garden down below. 
and uh, keep them in the hot fr- the uh, in a cold frame until it was warm enough to plant them. So when he was planting, he'd be planting foot tall tomatoes that he started in early March or late February. So, you know, it's it's a little late on tomatoes, but you can still do it, especially for smaller tomatoes. That's good to know. I, I, so you referenced your grandparents. Tell us a little bit about where your family came from in Italy and how your Italian background impacted your career, because I have to believe it's it, it plays a big part of it. Oh, sure. And I keep learning more and more ways that it impacts as I get older, because like you talking about ancestral traits, the older we get, we see more and more of our parents and grandparents in ourselves sometimes, for better or worse. Um, but <laughs> yeah. it's uh, it's just life. So for me, um, well, my grandparents um, came from a few different parts of Italy, but those that had the biggest impact on me came from um, Messina and a small town called Barafranca in Sicily. And then there are others in the north too, but mostly um, the grandparents that I knew best uh, were from the south. And, um, you know, they came, they were 19th century people. You know, my grandparents were very old when I was a kid. Uh, I'm the youngest of six. And of course, you know, these uh, Catholic Italian families go on and on and on with kids and kids and kids. So, you know, it's they were in their 90s when I was younger and 80s. But I watched all these ways of gathering family around for Sunday suppers and, you know, saving seeds. You know, if he ate a good tomato, he just smeared the seeds on the side of a brown paper shopping bag and wrote plum tomato on it and folded it up, and put it on top of his ice box when it was dried. And that's the seed he'd peel off next spring to plant. And so those things always have an impact. You know, you, you watch people do things by instinct as they learn them. And they don't always make sense at the time. But, you know, as I get older, I watch myself repeating a lot of those patterns, where you plant things, how you plant them. Yeah. What you cook <laughs> and why and how seasons affect it. So they definitely had a big impact. Yeah, I, uh, I find myself doing the same now now that i'm in my first home with my wife and we have a new baby daughter and yeah i've never planted anything but i am in communication with my grandfather a lot as a matter of fact for christmas this year i bought he and i each two seedlings of um a tree which we would call nashbole in sicilian i guess it's called a loquat Mm. japanese loquat or chinese loquat or something it's a a fruit that I always had with him growing up, it was very hard to come by and one that he recalled from his childhood. And so both he and I are kind of keeping up with each other of whose is growing well and, you know, uh, which trees are kind of thriving and which aren't. And I find that uh, I'm getting into my family history around their gardens and what they plant and how we plant it. And I don't know, maybe it's age, maybe it's having a home. I don't know what it is, but it's become a big topic for me. And I grew up you know, seeing a lot of that same stuff, as you as you mentioned, the, the idea of seed saving. For those in our audience who didn't, can you kind of give them a sense of how they might be able to start their own uh, seed collection? Because it, it's a little bit intimidating. If you Google it, I've been Googling it, it seems like there's a lot of writing on each different uh, fruit or vegetable, whatever it is, but something tells me it's got to be simpler than the, the Internet is, is making it. <laughs> well... 
you know, in terms of a trusted source for learning, I don't know how much I look to the internet, but my grandfather, the same way, you, know, you crack me up when you're talking about a loquat because of all the random things. I have a loquat growing in my living room. And I was like, what the hell is that? I, I <laughs> just, but when I grew, when I grew it, it's because I learned this tendency from my grandparents and my mother would do the same thing. If she ate any piece of fruit, any vegetable she liked, especially fruit seeds, she'd just stick them in the soil of some house plant and something would grow up out of it. And so we had full size citrus fruits in the house. We had all kinds of things. But when I grew this loquat, I had no memory of what it was. I couldn't identify it because it's a funky shaped leaf and it took me a while. But for them, this idea of saving seeds wasn't a mystery. It was a matter of look at nature. Seeds drop in the ground. The best stuff grows out of your compost file, for God's sake. So you don't have to, you read on the internet that you need to ferment, ferment your tomatoes to make them, uh, to clean the seeds off and all this. Yeah. I think really those things are written by people that want you to buy their seeds because you'd give up easily reading those things and trying to make that work. But it is as easy as sticking it in the ground or like I said, with my grandfather's tomatoes, smearing the seeds on the side of a brown paper bag, but doing it so that you're saving the best one. Because really, you can't do that with hybrid seeds. And it's why I write a lot about heirloom and heirloom preservation, because those seeds are open pollinated. They are our cultural inheritance. Hybrid seeds are genetic clones, and you have to rely on a company to get the next generation of seeds. And they're not bred for your backyard. But by all of that selection that our parents and grandparents were doing, they were breeding seeds for their backyard and for their house. And because they liked the red one or the one that made this kind of sauce or the best caponata or was the best medicinally. And that's how I save seeds today, too. Do you go to like um, Seed Savers Exchange or Seeds sure. from Italy? Do you, do you buy off of any commercial sites that sell heritage seeds? Or do you just use this the store of things that you have yourself that you've gathered over time? Well, I've had many careers working in museums and gardens and uh, educational sites where I've I've obtained heirloom seeds from many, many different sources, from tribal nations through every immigrant group that settled in that neighborhood. And so sometimes I look to the internet. Personally, I've never bought anything on the internet. I try to avoid that kind of thing. But I love making the connections with stories and plants and people. And so if I can get plants from people that have a direct lineage and that tell me a story that's meaningful to me, that's more what I grow. Um, but it's certainly fine to order them from the internet or if you're traveling don't ever let anybody tell you that seeds aren't legal to travel with. They are. And, you know, I bring back seeds uh, where I travel from. As long as they're not alive and they are dried, you know, it's great to try those things. As long as, you know, you're not bringing back an invasive species or uh, <laughs> something that could carry a, a, a fungal load that's dangerous, that kind of thing. Do you have any wow moments with seeds? Like you plant the tomato, an heirloom tomato, somebody gives you the seeds, and then you, you're you like, wow, this is so much better than what I could have gotten in a supermarket. I know that's a very generic kind of phraseology 
to deal. I'm sure you had many of those moments. No, it, it works completely. I mean, you remember, I don't know how old you are, but I remember growing up and you'd get these cellophane packets in the supermarket with, I think it was four pink orbs that were supposed to look and taste like tomatoes. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you were supposed to get mushrooms, the only thing you could get were these spongy things in a can. When I see the local foods movement rebuilding and growing your own, rebuilding flavor and taste. I'm reminded when I eat a great mushroom of foraging with my grandmother, or if I eat those, a certain tomato, there's taste memory there that takes me back to a place where I can remember eating a tomato for a meal in summer because you couldn't eat anything better than a sun-ripened tomato hot from the sun with maybe a little salt on it. And that's that's supper. So to me, taste memory is huge. There's There are many wows in heirloom plant preservation, but a lot of it is association for me, the stories. A lot of it's also growing what was grown in a place for a long time, because that means it has a history of doing well there. You know, most seeds today are selected to be grown in the Midwest, not our backyards where we live, and so that they can be sprayed with a huge chemical load and shipped thousands of miles. And those aren't things that a home gardener cares about. They really care about the flavor. I, I remember when um, the founder of Slow Food, Carlo Petrini, came uh, when I was starting a chapter where I live, and he'd just come from Seed Savers Exchange, and he said, and so they're telling me about this tomato and how old it is and how important it is. And I say to them, yeah, but does it taste good? <laughs> and to me, that's an important factor too, is we don't preserve things just to preserve them. Well, sometimes we do, but on the whole, we preserve them because there is some superior trait that makes it so that we should value them and not let them slip away. And so I get wow moments all the time. And as a gardener, fresh ones every year. Give us some wow, like give us some maybe Italian leaning seeds, Italian American leaning seeds. I know there's the Joe Nardiello pepper. Yeah. I know there's certain, what's the word? Heritage, I guess, heritage varietals of summer vegetables that are Italian American. Do you have any special ones of your own that maybe are not well known? Well, sure. I mean, we save a whole range of them uh, through the work I do in slow food, but also regionally. Every museum I go to, you know, if we find heirloom seeds preserved in that neighborhood, I work with farmers and chefs so that every farmer wants to grow them, every chef wants to serve them, because that's how you preserve it. You eat them, and then suddenly they're back around. You mentioned Jimmy Nardello pepper. That was preserved by a Rhode, a Rhode Island farmer, and that's one of the... Uh, peppers that singled out through slow food um, as one that's uh, notable for preservation. But there are a whole bunch of different tomatoes and eggplant and things that it, it cracks me up because so much of the so many of these foods came from the Americas, went back to Italy in the 16th and 17th century from South America. And then they came back with our immigrant ancestors in the 19th and 20th centuries. And so they're growing these plants that crossed continents and they're bringing back something like a zucchini that had never been eaten in New England or a tomato that had never been eaten in the Northeast. And so those are some really fun things to revive. So, yeah, I'm always experimenting with that. And I try to add new every year. And um, 
for me, a lot of those are the things again that bring connections. My grandfather wasn't growing it just because it was Italian. He brought a grapevine back from Italy. He brought a, a sprig of a fig that he grew in his garden in the Northeast from Italy. And those are the sorts of things that made them meaningful to them. So I try to discover the, like any of us can do, try to discover the things that somebody in our family still holds or a farmer in our community still holds. So what are, like, what are you planting this year that's new? So I'm further north than you. I haven't planted anything yet. <laughs> and uh, I've got a, I have a lot of garden planning to do, but I've been working on this book. And so I'm, I, I can't even tell you what I'm planting yet this year, but it will involve some seeds that I don't even know the names of because it is the seed of a tomato, uh, like the one my grandfather grew. It didn't have a name on it. Um, but I also buy a lot of greens. Um, uh, th things like broccoli rabe. I, I love to grow that and I love to eat that. Um, there's a different kind of flavor to uh, the Italian eggplant that I grow. Um, it's, I've been saving the same seeds for years. I don't even know the name of it. Um, but then there are the name varieties. And I try to just mix it up every year. But I'll let you know later what I've planted. I'll, I'll send you a garden scheme after it's in the ground. <laughs> I think people who are not in touch with Italy don't realize how hyper local Italy is. Yeah. So, you know, the vegetable we grow in our town, the next town over does not grow it. Yeah. Or, you know, this variety of tomato. And in Italy, there's, you know, you might have in a local area five different tomatoes, and every different type of those five is used for something different. Yeah. One's a salad tomato, one's a paste making tomato. One is a jarring tomato. You're exactly right. And it's kind of like a symphony with all different notes that kind of comes together. And that's how we ate all over the world until World War II, even here in America. But when the seed companies were bought up by chemical companies, we lost all of that regional genetic diversity. It's why I write about heirlooms and teach about heirlooms, because we've lost over 90% of that diversity in the last hundred years. The stuff that each town had, every county had, you know, there's a green they're famous for, an apple they're famous for, a tomato. And so it's bringing back that regional heritage, because right now we're seeing a new local foods movement that's giving us real flavor and nutritional alternatives to the crap that you buy in supermarkets. And so for me, it's a real reconnection that is important both for health as well as that flavor. And it's also eating seasonally. All of our ancestors ate different things all throughout the year. And I didn't always get how my grandfather gardened. When he'd come to my parents' house in this little suburban town down towards Cape Cod, he'd put tomatoes in between my grandmother's peonies, which he called peonies. And he put eggplant in between hosta that he called funkia. And I just thought, you crazy old man, Americans don't garden like that. And <laughs> now to me, that's the new American garden that I write about in my book. It's the ways we combine all the herbs and vegetables and perennials that we love into our gardens and landscapes. Because his home wasn't just his home, it was his castle. And his garden wasn't just his landscape, it was his palace garden you know uh he they both took great pride in in what grew but also as they would say by 
sharing the fruits of their labors. That was something he just was so proud of that he could actually be growing things enough to share with others. When you talk about your grandfather, you remind me a lot of my own Sicilian grandfather and same sense of pride and the story behind all the stuff in my grandparents' garden. And it's what's driven me to kind of unwrap this question around a home garden this year is the same sense of like it's part of your family heritage. And if you're going to put something in the ground, make it something that's got a story and is sustainable and is is diverse. I mean, the fact that you say we've lost 90% of the biodiversity of our consumed plants in the years since World War II is, is actually kind of terrifying, really. I mean, it yeah. it, it, it brings to, to the front this whole idea of the archaeo cucina and the, the, the slow food and the sort of Noah's Ark of seeds and uh, of flora and fauna. Obviously, there's a lot exactly. of um, domesticated animals that were used for food that are now disappearing. You went to Italy as part of the USA slow food movement. Can you talk a little bit about what's being done there? I know slow food was born out of Italy and, and you know, it sort of makes sense. Um, but I know Italy is under extreme pressure right now to preserve what they can of their diversity of ingredients. What's the progress that's been made there? Well, I feel like in a world where a lot of people today feel helpless to make any change in the world around them, slow food is a great vehicle to, that reminds us that our own backyard is an ark, you know, and in our backyard ark, we can preserve all kinds of things that are in danger of disappearing. And that includes habitat, that includes um, biodiversity of both plants and animals, really, and um, trying to keep some of those rare breed animals and endangered plants alive for the future. Because really, when we look at agribusiness models, so many of them are failing. And it's because of, you know, what brought part of my other ancestry here, the Irish from Ireland. You know, there was a potato famine because they so narrowed genetic diversity. But as Carlo Petrini says in Slow Food, this is a delicious revolution. We don't have to stand on a soapbox and say, your method of doing this is bad. Agribusiness is bad. You just eat what's grown in the local foods movement. And you know why this is a delicious revolution worth planting the seeds of in your backyard and that you can make a difference with something as small as a seed that you've got in your hand. But you can also share that in community and one community after another all around the world. And now in 180, yeah, 180 nations around the world have slow food. And they're not just saying, oh, make pasta because that's what saved slow food in Italy. They're saying rediscover the traditional plants and the traditional cuisine of the place you live and make that the backbone of your local economy where you live. And you're going to build better systems that apply to place right where you are. You know, when I traveled to Italy for slow food, I got to some places where I could read a landscape that I didn't understand when I was growing up why my grandfather's garden looked like it did. But to him, gardening was a craft. And as I get older as a horticulturist, and it is my craft, I see why the olives went there and the citrus went here and their bay tree would fit in there and their herbs over in this spot and why they'd keep chickens and compost in another area and why that terraced area was perfect for their tomatoes and the sun-loving plants. And to me, it's also what you learn about keeping a little bit of a homestead and 
being a craftsman as a gardener. My grandmother also used to say, it's better to pay the grocer than the doctor. And <laughs> today we're seeing through modern science that sometimes plants that are grown to full ripeness in place and not shipped thousands of miles like food today, they can have as much as 70% greater nutritional value than things that are shipped by conventional means. And so to me, it's that craftsmanship that we're bringing back that also lets us really have the best of what's available and share it with our families. You know what fascinates me, what got me all hooked into this in a general sense New Jersey was known for a hard cider in the colonial period. Mm -hmm. And um, George Washington used to order like quantities of cider. And the area around Orange, New Jersey and Newark was a big cider producing area. And New Jersey had its own varietals of cider apples that were just used to make cider with. Yeah. And I think that when the Germans came in and it became more of a beer culture, especially in Newark, like Ballantyne, those are the breweries. Then um, Prohibition, those New Jersey cider apples, they thought had gone extinct. And someone drove around New Jersey. This is a true story. Looking for, he, he had the mentality that somebody in their backyard, some kind of home that's been around since the 1860s, is going to have a cider apple tree. They had an idea what these apples looked like from books from like the 1820s and stuff like that. And the guy drove around Jersey until he found an apple that couldn't be identified. I'm, I'm giving you the layman's version of this because that's how I remembered it, but it, they couldn't identify as another apple, but it looked exactly like the apples that were in these books that were these cider apples. And there's a brewery in, in Western Jersey. It's on my to-do list, uh, my bucket list. It's called um, Ironbound Brewery. It's based on the Ironbound section. And Ironbound was another name for a certain section of Newark. Now they make two varietals of cider from what I've come to understand. Mm -hmm. They make one that's like made from generic apples. They make another one from these antique, these heritage apples that were found um, by this apple, I guess Johnny Appleseed searching for apple guy. And they sell it for like $65 a bottle, $75 a bottle. It gets like a huge, because there's a limited amount of trees and they sell it for a premium. And like, there's money in this when you think about it. Oh, yeah. Now, I don't know if it tastes good. It's on my to-do list. All new local economies are being built out of artisanal foods. And it's not that they always cost ridiculous amounts. But I think the local foods movement has brought back so many traditions. New England was a cider drinking region as well. And by prohibition, we cut down all the orchards. And that was a way to get rid of hard cider. And then once Prohibition lifted, beer production was something they could mainstream. So we got more of that, too. But, you know, since local food came around, we're getting real bakeries and we're getting cheesemongers and fishmongers and all of these people that are doing real craftspersons work and reviving old trades that people used to take pride in instead of schlepping something into a plastic bucket that you knew was full of crap nobody should be eating. And we're all seeing that the preserved foods are unhealthy for us. And that a lot of these peasant diets from the Mediterranean are considered some of the healthiest diets in the world. So when you're getting local artisanal, like those apples, I love hard cider. You know, I was never 
a great beer drinker because I think I'm a little bit allergic to hops. But now I find that there's local beer that I love, but I also really love local hard cider. And it agrees with me. I don't get any allergic reaction to it. So it's another great example of local. You know what I had over Christmas? Uh, I had in January, I, I bought a, a block of Stilton from England on sale. Yeah. And then I bought organic English hard cider. Oh, model. I mean, you know, <laughs> the English do not have a um a reputation, um a, a culinary reputation. And I think that they have good ingredients. They just don't know what to do with them. Yeah. <laughs> but well, and how to craft them into good things. But cheeses. Yeah, they don't know. But the Stilton, the Stilton and the cider, it was just the short. I don't. I, I was like, I was like, it was like ecstasy. Yeah, I don't know yeah. what I'm. I'm not a drug user. I've never used drugs, but I have an idea what they must be like. It must be like Stilton and cider. <laughs> I know, really. I was like, so I was like, this is like the most. Well, I'm Italian. Fortunately, I can have that euphoria from a good pot of tomato sauce. Yeah, exactly, I, mean, like, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't need to smoke something to feel good because I got tomatoes. <laughs> oh, I had last year because my grandma decides from Sorrento. I had Sorrento has its own um, tomatoes. Mm-hmm. And I found their seeds on Etsy, and I had never seen them in the states, right? And those tomatoes are grown from mozzarella. That's that's like the mozzarella, like the caprese salad. That's what they call it now. Mm-hmm. That is a tomato because see, Sorrento does not have a buffalo milk traditional mozzarella. We've always had cows. That's always been the standard. Mm-hmm. So it's much more. And John and I have our own story about Italy travels with Sorrento mozzarella, but it has its own. Um, familiarity with the American palate because it's very close to what you get in the States. So you have the Italian snobs and they're everywhere. And they're, oh, this is disgusting. The fior di latte, meaning the cow's milk mozzarella you got in America. But because they they be, they didn't know what mozzarella was 30 years ago because, before it became a nationalized product. And they eat the buffalo mozzarella from Salerno and Caserta and now in Lazio and parts of Puglia, which is an excellent product. But it's very different than the cow's milk mozzarella. But when you pair the cow's milk mozzarella, the mozzarella that you get here in the States, with that Sorrento tomato, which since time immemorial, because remember, Sorrento was the Wisconsin of a pre-unified yeah. Italy. That, it had all the yeah. milk cows for, people don't realize that, for the city of Naples. If you're out there right now, get on, you, you know what's going to happen? You're all going to order this. I'm going to wind up with nothing. But that's all right, because I love you all, <laughs> even I don't know you. And I, I don't want to say bad Italian words on, on the podcast, but go and get, this, I think it's a Rosa di Sorrento uh, tomato. Mm. Once you grow this and you could get a good quality uh, mozzarella, uh, you, you, it's like an ecstasy. And if you go on seeds from Italy and you get the Neapolitan elephant leaf uh, basil, Vasanigola is my grandmother call it. If you marry that basil mm. and a good mozzarella and that Sorrento tomato, you have an Italy experience. Because, you know, I have a friend um, from law school and her her father um, immigrated from Italy, but him and his friends in central New Jersey, uh, my friend Rosie, they kept, they acted like they were still in Italy. They grew, everything they ate, they grew. And my friend used to say all the time, it can be done in America. We could have fruits and vegetables the same quality as Italy if we put the same care in it. I, you eat local, so it's not two weeks on the truck. Mm-hmm. You plant good varietals. You know, you plant varietals that are for taste and not for transportation or for looks. And she used to say, I'm, and this was her assertion all the time, that she would assert that her stuff was just as good what her cousins were making in Italy. Now, I know the Italians from Italy can go berserko, but you know, I can't help you with that. But Yeah, but it's like grandmother's chicken soup. It's the love you put into it 
that makes it what it is. It's like somebody will tell you what the best pizza is. You know what? The best pizza to them is what they grew up with. But there are a million different good pizzas and there are different versions of a lot of things. But when you grow it with love and when you invest care into it, it tastes different than factory food. It's more nutritious, but it's also that passion that Italians have. You put that into the soil and you create something very different. And I like cow's milk mozzarella. I like buffalo milk mozzarella. But yeah, every there's, there's a mozzarella for every taste. Yeah. For every but what occasion. I love is that there are three farmers producing either cows or buffalo near me to hand make mozzarella that I can buy at my farmer's market here that tastes like nothing I can buy in a store. So we are rebuilding part of what was in Italy, but I also do it from my lawn. You know, I was out last weekend. We didn't have dandelions growing in my lawn as a kid because my Italian grandmother would be out there with a pen knife cutting them out of the lawn in the <laughs> spring. And I was doing yep. the same thing. And I just, I made a simple dish of dandelion greens last year, last week. Oh, it yeah. might as well have been oh, a five-star restaurant, you know, yeah, and that's the best. this is free food that people were dumping poison on to get rid of it in America for decades. And it's right there in front of us. Uh, I went to a airport in uh, Rome when I first landed uh, on the last trip and we were famished. We really wanted real food, but we had to get something. We were so hungry at the airport, but we got a piece of pizza that had fresh arugula rocket on it fistfuls on one piece you could take something like that and make it real and from the garden and from the season and have that in an airport mall kind of situation you know like i go to like whole foods and i go to the supermarket and the arugula it's never really it's it's never it's never it's just not italy fresh it's always like it's starting to go a little bit sometimes, even in the expensive places, it's starting to get a little bit yellowish or I don't know. It just doesn't have that same taste that the wild arugula does in Italy. That's yeah, like a big letdown. It's why, you know, we can invest in the first new big screen TV or computer or whatever. But to me, I'd rather invest into the person making local cider and the person at my farmer's market that's giving me arugula that can be in my fridge three weeks because they picked it that morning and I won't let it be there for three weeks because it's going to be so delicious. I'll make it into something, you know, grind it up with some walnuts and make a pesto or just eat it as a salad. But to me, that's where I'd rather invest anything John, I can. John, I got it. Do you make homemade alcohol from the plants that you grow? Not rubbing alcohol or spirit alcohol, like cordials. Yeah, I do. Uh, and it's um, it's pretty funny because I brought some to a family Christmas when my uncle from the other side of the family came and he said, oh, you're making cordials like your papa. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, you remember on top of his icebox, all those bottles and we and I'd forgotten all about it, but I learn you all, we all learn things that we don't even know we're learning around a kitchen table. It's partly why I think the whole supper Sunday supper tradition is so valuable. And so I've been making them for decades now, I I infuse a lot of things, I distill some things, and I teach that a lot. Uh, I write about it in my book as well, and ways that we can reclaim all of this artisanal and crafts that are basic homestead skills from any other generation that lived in the world before us. Let me tell you something. My mother's cousin, who came, very distant cousin, um, that came to America in the 60s, 
as an adult. Her father brought her when he came over um, fennel seeds, wild fennel. Mm-hmm. And she plant them in her yard and they come back every year. And she lets me cut them every year because to, to her, they've just become in, 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 uh, intrusive. Is that the word? Mm-hmm. They're just all over the place. And I make finocchietto, mm. um, the liqueur from that. Yeah. Oh, let me tell you something. It's like the most delicious. If I was going to die and they said, what's your last drink? I want that finocchietto. I'm <laughs> no one loves my finocchietto like I love my finocchietto. It is so it's just like the most it's it's delicious. It's digestive. I know where it comes from. I cut the plant. And all you have to do is soak the um, fennel, for, I guess, the, the, the flower that comes like in September, October, and the um, branches, the stems in Everclear. You, you soak it for 24 hours, and then you have the base to make the cordial with. You boil sugar and water. You mix it all together. And the reason I bring it up is that it doesn't work with fennel that is not super fresh. Uh-huh. Because fennel in 24 hours, those branches turn into sticks. Yep. And you know, and it's like what they say in Italian, kilometer zero. You know, it says kilometer zero as you can get. But you know, John, it's such a great thing for you to come on because as we were talking, it came to my mind. We have so many guests and listeners who do what you do, who are in the same world. You know, John Mary Minetti with the Italian Garden Project. Yep. Owen Taylor, uh, one of our listeners who I'd love to have on one day, who works with preserving like heritage seeds from immigrant groups that have come from come to the United States from all around the world. We're good at this. This is like in our DNA. It is. And it's this vast knowledge. Like in that little bit about talking about one cordial, you also spoke as an herbalist because you knew that it has digestive properties. You understand that our wellness is tied to all of this in ways that, you know, we didn't think of, medicine is something separate food was the first way you understood your medicine and fresh was a part of it but something like a cordial you drank for digestion after a meal maybe you took it instead of an antidepressant sometimes too i don't think it's called a cordial by accident you live in the northeast (laughs) you maybe need a cordial in the middle of winter (laughs) yeah but I, i think some of these things are just in our dna but they're also there because it's an effective first line of defense. You can do this stuff when you've got a garden. And to me, even if you just have a balcony that you can grow a bunch of your favorite things in a pot or grow a bunch of your favorite perennial herbs and vegetables uh, in your garden, it's it's access like that fennel. And when I walk by that fennel, I just eat the ripe, well, the seeds right from the plant. The flowers go on my salads the the leaves get snipped into salads and into dishes that I cook. And you can't do that stuff unless you've got fresh right there in your garden. That's really powerful. And, it, and, you know, it, of course the circle always squares and, you know, we, we started in our back and forth about my daughter's genetic predisposition towards what I think of as angry Italian hand in mouth. And uh, I put my hand down on my thigh as soon as you said it. And I made that gesture before you finished the <laughs> sentence. I know that gesture. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, you know, it's like you say, this stuff is in our DNA. And, uh, you know, sometimes we rely on science and we search for proof. And sometimes the proof is in the pudding and no pun intended. It's in the <laughs> result. And uh, you don't know that you can do this stuff until you try it. And I, I think that that's um, that's really a big part of our mission here at the podcast is to say to people, you know, some of us are connected to this stuff and we learned it from parents or grandparents. And some of us have distant memories. Some of us have the hint of memory or just the desire 
to pursue these things, and we want to be a platform that gives people avenues to pursue them and uh, and and a collective experience that they can share in because uh, sometimes it's good to know you're not the only one out there. And yeah. I want to point out to everybody, your book only came out in 2021, so it's it's a relatively new book, The Heirloom Gardener, Traditional Plants and Skills for the Modern World. I think it's safe to say, after spending a little bit of time with John, this will be a great resource for anybody out there who is looking to answer some of these questions and may not have family to tap into or uh, experience of their own. So I certainly recommend going out. I ordered a copy of the book myself uh, as I set out on this journey. And uh, John, now that you're Why a friend you of the have show, Stephanie, get me one. <laughs> I ordered it myself. Uh, next time I'll just order you whatever it. I order myself. No, no, I'll tell order. Nobody even tells me. I didn't know we were there was a book. Well, you know how to get I mean, to a bookstore, too, I mean, I heard, I mean, I heard too, the book Patrick. in the conversation, but <laughs> well, I got my book. Stephanie got you the book, and Stephanie got me She didn't book. get it for me. I got it for myself. Yeah, I ordered it. Yeah, I went on sure. Amazon. Yeah. Okay, well, here we go. I, I know I don't like it. that stuff on. It's too complicated. All right. Well, on Facebook, I have a page called The Heirloom Gardener, John Forty. And every day I post something seasonal, something along the lines of everything we've talked about and just how to live a better, easier, more fun life through gardening. So check it out. It's The Heirloom Gardener, John Forty, uh, like the book. Um, and it's just another way to get to that uh, knowledge of how to do things in each season that make your life a lot richer. Go out and buy the book. I'm going to buy the book now because Stephanie didn't get me one. I'm sure she got John one. Stephanie didn't get me one. Don't blame her. I did it myself. Thank you very much. But it's, but your encouragement is right. Throw me under the, the seed bus. <laughs> get the book. And we're going to link both the book and the Facebook page on the show notes uh, on our show page. So you'll be able to have access there from wherever you're listening. But uh, Go and buy the book. Go and buy the book. Please don't be a cheapskate and go and buy the book. <laughs> you don't buy these books. People are not going to print them. Do your grandmother proud. <laughs> you That's right. Do your nonna proud. Get the book. Get the yeah. book. Don't get one. Get multiple ones. It's actually a great book to share with the generations because yeah. the older generation gets it at a deep level. And whenever I go out and do talks, it's something that, they can relate to, but it's also what the next generations understand is how they're going to make a difference in the world too. So it really works across generations. And I think right now as a culture, we could all do well to find a little common ground. And this book is really about that. So happy planting everybody. Mother's Day is coming. Father's Day is coming. <laughs> it's a perfect gift for Mother's Day and uh, a perfect time of the year. The The sun, at least in Westchester here is shining. And I, I know I'm going to be tirelessly searching for these things because I know now, thanks to our new friend, John, I am just at the cusp of a little bit too late for the season and I don't want to miss that. So John, can't thank you enough for coming on. And now that you're a friend of the show, I'm going to be dropping you some emails because I have a whole litany of questions, personal questions that I could absolutely use your expertise on as I go out into uh, my first ever home garden. So uh, please just tell me when I get annoying. All right. Well, happy gardening, everybody. And um, thanks for keeping the seeds alive. Good work, all. Amen, and thanks to you, and happy gardening to everybody out there. I hope that you're not only going to buy the book, save your favorite seeds, talk to your family about seeds that they may have uh, in their homes or in old family homes, or you never know where you find these things. But uh, like John says, it's all about good eating. We've got a really, really easy pitch to everybody out there. Save what you like to eat. That's really, really important. So that's our show this week, Paisani. And as my father says, put the macaroni on. We're coming home. Thanks for listening, everybody. 
See you next week. Ciao. Da, 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 da. If you want your life to be great, see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italiano.